From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Monuments to those who fought to keep black people enslaved in the United States continue to draw ire as well as renewed efforts by lawmakers to remove them. Statutes of Confederate leaders were erected not just to honor these men, but as part of a movement which has now become known as the cult of the lost cause. This lost cause had one goal, through monuments and other means to rewrite history, to hide the truth, which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity. It sought to continue to oppress black Americans and black lives. And the debate over who or what is honored is just one part of a bigger struggle in the U.S. right now over what stories of American history and of current events will be told and who will tell them. It's our week for culture and media, and journalist John Jeter is back in the hot seat. They talk about free speech and trying to protect free speech. That's not really what this is about. This is about trying to stop leftist elements within our society from holding these reactionary elements within the academy, within journalism, accountable. As always, that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. With confirmed COVID-19 cases in the United States topping 4 million and more than 144,000 deaths, the House and Senate are still no closer to a deal that will provide more resources for health care and assistance for the tens of millions of unemployed, many of whom are about to lose the additional $600 of weekly aid included in the CARES Act. With more Americans facing eviction or foreclosure, the National Cancel the Rents campaign at canceltherents.org is holding its monthly action in several cities around the country on Saturday, July 25th. Here in D.C., a broad coalition of organizations is holding a rally from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Columbia Heights Plaza, 14th and Park Road in Northwest D.C. Organizers say that D.C. government has the ability to cancel rent and end evictions during the COVID emergency. Chantel James spoke to Amanda Huron, a member of Empower D.C.'s board who works with the D.C. Tenants Union. I, I think the one thing I'd like to share is just the story of a family that I've gotten to know since April. So I mentioned that I am helping support tenant organizing in a apartment building in Columbia Heights. It's a pretty big building, about 60 units. It is um, almost entirely Spanish-speaking immigrant tenants in the building. Um, many of them are undocumented. One of the tenant leaders there who I've gotten to know, she is a wonderful woman. She's in her 50s. She and her husband were both laid off from their jobs in March. They have been unemployed since. They have five children. They live in a one-bedroom apartment. They pay $1,900 a month for this apartment. Both this woman and her husband were diagnosed with COVID um, a couple of months ago. The husband um, had it so bad that he was hospitalized. They're both okay now, but they're both still unemployed. They now owe about $6,000 in back rent. Um, They have no idea when they're going to get work again. They have received very little cash assistance. You know, they've gotten some assistance here and there from churches, but nothing from the city. Um, They have diligently applied for city assistance, have not gotten it yet. And I wonder, what's going to happen to this family? You know, are you really going to evict a family, 
of seven, two adults and five children from their apartment building. And, and, and this is just one, one family in one building. There are many, many instances in that same building of people who've been sick with COVID, lost their jobs, do not have any assistance. And then that is replicated thousands of times over across the city. And so I just, you know, we are facing an unprecedented public health and moral crisis and an economic crisis. And we, we've, we've got to allow people to stay in their homes. Many of the same social justice organizations in D.C. will also be hosting the March Against Trump's Police State at the White House on Saturday, July 25th at 1 p.m. to oppose federal police sent illegally into Portland, Oregon, where these anonymous military-clad federal agents have violently attacked peaceful protesters and bystanders and even kidnapped and detained people off the street, throwing them into unmarked rental cars. Trump announced this week that more of these agents from the Customs and Border Patrol are headed to Chicago, Seattle, and Albuquerque. But with local leaders and legal experts pushing back, it is not clear if Trump has the authority to continue to deploy these agents without local, without being invited by local elected officials. Several lawsuits have been brought against the Trump administration for using federal police to attack the First and Fourth Amendment rights of Americans. But activists here in D.C. and around the country point out the abuse they are also experiencing from local police and how local lawmakers and police collaborate with federal entities. Sean Blackman of the Stop Police Terror Project reminded us of the attacks on peaceful protesters here in D.C. in June that were carried out by both federal and local police. Flashbang grenades, pepper spray, tear gas, all these sorts of things. People were, you know, hit with uh, rubber bullets. Just an all-out military assault. The police kettled people. They were buzzed by helicopters. Helicopters were flying so low that it was whipping people's clothes. We see this in images and video from that night. And that was also the same night as the assault on Swan Street, when the police trapped people on Swan Street and gassed them uh, mercilessly. And luckily, there were some people who took protesters into their home to give them refuge but i want to point something out because muriel bowser's like oh well donald trump ordered this attack but this was dc police that was helping them do it those were her officers that were helping to uh, uh try to repress protesters so she is every bit as culpable in that repression as donald trump is back on capitol hill the u.s senate passed its version of the national defense authorization act on thursday allocating 740.5 billion dollars to the pentagon Progressives, including Senators Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, and Ed Markey of Massachusetts, voted against the bill, which was passed a day after an amendment proposed by Sanders and Markey to cut the Pentagon's budget by 10% and redirect that funding towards significant investments in education, health care, and housing in poor communities was rejected, with a majority of Democrats siding with the GOP. Trump has threatened to veto the bill on the grounds that it includes an amendment introduced by Warren to rename military bases which memorialize Confederate figures. But the budget was passed with more than two-thirds of the Senate support, a veto-proof majority. Confederate memorials were also the focus on Tuesday, July 21st at a congressional hearing on the removal of Confederate statues on public land. We'll hear voices from that hearing after headlines. In environmental news, more follow-up on our recent stories on the shutdown of pipeline projects. 
HuffPost is reporting that Dominion CEO Thomas Farrell's history of targeting black communities for fossil fuel infrastructure projects and glorifying the Confederacy is under new scrutiny after the demise of his controversial Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Here in D.C., Monsanto will pay $52 million to clean up toxic polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, contaminating the Anacostia and Potomac Rivers, settling a lawsuit brought just two months ago by the D.C.'s Attorney General Carl Racine. And internationally, scientists are keeping a worried eye on the first active leak of methane gas from the seafloor in Antarctica, a sign of global heating and a possible tipping point that would put the impacts of climate change out of human control. Researchers at Oregon State University found the methane leak within the Ross Sea, 30 feet below the surface of the ocean. In international news, quote, the cruelty of the occupation knows no bounds, end quote, tweeted Palestinian rights advocacy group If Not Now, after the Israeli civil administration demolished a building that was to provide badly needed COVID-19 testing and quarantine space in the West Bank. The Palestinian Health Ministry said Wednesday that there were 154 new cases in Hebron District the day the building was destroyed, including 60 in the city itself. Also in the Middle East and Africa, I asked our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, about news reports that Egypt may intervene militarily in neighboring Libya in a conflict that has been brewing between Egypt and Turkey, which back opposite sides in Libya's ongoing civil war. As you suggested, there is a real danger that Egypt will intervene in Libya on behalf of General Haftar, who is battling the government in Tripoli, General Haftar is backed by Russia and France, in addition to being backed by Egypt. Egypt, as your listeners, I'm sure, recall, also has a problem on its other border with regard to Ethiopia. Uh, That is to say, this conflict over Ethiopia building a grand dam and how Egypt is claiming that it's threatening its lifeblood, which is the Nile River. Now, what's interesting is that with regard to Libya itself, it's not only that you have General Haftar battling the Tripoli regime, but the Tripoli regime is in turn backed by Turkey and Qatar, and this could lead to a sharp conflict between Egyptian troops and Turkish troops, uh, which could easily spin out of control. Okay, well, we'll definitely keep a watch on this very uh, tense situation. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And finally, in culture and media, writer Ishmael Reed responded to this month's distribution of the Broadway hit Hamilton to the new Disney Plus streaming service with a scathing essay in Counterpunch. Reed reminds us that he challenged Lin-Manuel Miranda's depiction of slave owners and slave brokers as abolitionists with his play, The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. In the play, Miranda is taught the truth by enslaved Africans, Native Americans, and others whose views are not represented in Hamilton. Reed writes, quote, 
Under pressure by the revolt launched by George Floyd's death and Black Lives Matter, Miranda had to defend his honoring slave owners and traders in his musical, which erected on stage statues for Hamilton and the Schuyler sisters who were involved in the evil business of slavery all of their lives, end quote. You can read more of Reed's essay at Counterpunch, and there was also a Zoom performance of The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda this month, and Reed maintains a fundraiser for his play at GoFundMe under the title My Hamilton and Theirs. History notes for this week, July 24th, 1783 is the birthday of the liberator Simon Bolivar, 1783-1830. Born in Caracas, Venezuela to a European Creole family, Bolivar is celebrated throughout South America for his work to liberate six nations, Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia from the rule of Spain. So even today, the proper name of the country with the world's largest oil reserves is the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And July 26th is celebrated as the beginning of Cuba's revolutionary 26th of July movement that defeated and drove out the brutal U.S.-backed regime of dictator Fulgencio Batista. The movement's name commemorates the 1953 attack on the army barracks in Santiago de Cuba. The movement's objectives included distribution of land to peasants, nationalization of public services, and public education. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Stay with us. Thank you, Chairwoman Holland and Ranking Member Curtis. I want to thank also uh, Chairman Grijalva for having me here today and for including H.R. Uh, 970, the Robert E. Lee Statute Removal Act, as part of today's legislative hearing. I also want to thank my colleagues, Congresswoman Norton and Congressman McEachin, for their work on this issue. We're all incredibly proud of our national parks and public lands. They preserve the natural landscapes and represent part of the intricate tapestry of our national history. And that history can be painful. Uh, Yet we are reminded that we have not had an honest accounting of that history. And for too long, we've been blind to the way past injustices continues to shape the present. The question before us today is straightforward. Do Confederate flags and monuments have any place in our national parks? To answer this question, I simply ask myself what these statutes and symbols commemorate. 
uh, the glorification of the Confederacy, its traitorous leaders, their cause of slavery and open rebellion against the United States of America. In my mind, there is only one side in the Civil War we should be honoring, the United States, and all those Americans in both the North and South who fought against those who tried to divide our country and perpetuate a system of systemic oppression and racial subjugation. And therefore, it is time for these monuments to come down. These statues and monuments were built in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by Confederate apologists, segregationists, and opponents of civil rights. They recast Confederate soldiers as heroes fighting for a supposed lost cause and celebrated their traitorous leaders. And the heyday of monument building, a period that began in 1890 and spanned to 1920, was also a time of extreme racial violence, violence that we saw again during the 1960s and 1970s when white Southerners pushed back against what little progress had been made by black Americans. As monuments went up, black men, women, and children were being lynched. The Confederate monument served as a reminder of the power that white supremacists could and would exert over black bodies. These monuments became beacons of white supremacy and symbols of an effort to intimidate black Americans into seeing themselves as inferior and less than. These monuments do nothing to teach us of the dark lessons of our history, but are the very center of the white supremacist racist imagination. My bill would remove but one of many such works from federal land. This statue of Robert E. Lee on Antietam Battlefield, the place where more Americans died in a single day, was commissioned with the explicit intent of honoring the Confederacy and built in 2003, 138 years after the end of the Civil War. The 24-foot statue of Lee is not historically accurate, and despite an inscription stating otherwise, honors a man who fought to preserve the institution of slavery. Thank you, Mr. Brown. The chair now recognizes the gentlelady from the District of Columbia, Ms. Norton. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, for holding this hearing. I thank your fellow com uh, committee members, and I thank uh, your fellow panelists. I also thank you for allowing me to testify on my bill to permanently remove the statute of Confederate General Albert Pike from federal land near the Judiciary Square in, in the nation's capital. This statute was authorized not by the District of Columbia, but by Congress in 1898 when the district had no home rule, that is to say, self-government authority. The statute was constructed using both federal and private funds. The Freemasons, of which Pike was a member, donated the money, uh, or much of it, uh, needed to build and install the statute in 1901. The Freemasons themselves support the statute's removal. I've written with them, uh, and they say given its divisive nature, it's time for it to go. Although the statute was taken down last month during a demonstration, President Trump reportedly has called for the statute to be put back up. I believe Confederate statutes should be placed in museums, a valuable as valuable historical artifacts when combined with the story of their meaning in our history. Pike was a Confederate general who served dishonorably and was forced to resign in disgrace. It was found that soldiers under his command mutilated the bodies 
of Union soldiers, and Pike was ultimately imprisoned uh, after his fellow officers reported that he had misappropriated funds, adding to the dishonor of taking up arms against the United States, Pike dishonored even his Confederate military service. He certainly has no claim to be memorialized in the nation's capital. Madam Chair, I appreciate the hearing. I strongly urge my colleagues to support this legislation. Thank you again. Thank you, Ms. Norton. I thank the sponsoring members of Congress for their valuable testimony. Now we will transition to our second panel. The chair now recognizes Reverend Robert Wright Lee, descendant of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. I am not the first Robert Lee to testify before the United States Congress. One did in 1866 during Reconstruction. It is indeed another person who bears a first and surname identical to mine and whose lineage I bear as a nephew of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. But I've been clear that I dare not speak for my entire family or for even the general himself, as some still revere him and see no reason for this hearing today. I will instead let the famed Confederate soldier speak for himself, as his documented testimony before Congress can be found easily in your records. When asked before Congress and the country, if black American citizens were equally capable of acquiring knowledge as white Americans, that, Robert Lee said, I do not think that he is capable of acquiring knowledge as the white man is. There are some more apt than others. I have known some to acquire knowledge and skill in their trade or profession. I've had servants of my own who learned to read and write very well. Lee was later asked by a senator from Missouri during the same hearing if southern states should allow the suffrage of black Americans. Lee remarked, my own opinion is that at this time they cannot vote intelligently and that giving them the right of suffrage would open the door to great deals of demagogism and lead to embarrassments in various ways. I raise these two statements and moments from the other Robert Lee's testimony to highlight the difference and dissonance from what this Robert Lee is about to say. I fully believe, along with a host of other amazing citizens of this great country, that black lives matter. And for us to continue to celebrate a man who questioned the education, disparaged the right to vote of black life, and had previously fought for the continued enslavement of Africans on the North American continent is an affront to those now who are suffering under current weights of oppression. If we are honest, the answer is clear. We cannot remain complicit with these monuments. We cannot remain silent anymore. If we do so, our silence becomes agreement and endorsement to complicity. The statue at Antietam and the bill that it represents and statues everywhere must be re removed for a more perfect union, which is inclusive of a better tomorrow and a better United States. Thank you very much, Reverend Lee. The chair now recognizes the Honorable Mitch Landrew, founder of E Pluribus Unum and former mayor of the city of New Orleans. Thank you, Madam uh, Chairperson and Ranking Member Curtis. As many of you know, as mayor of New Orleans, I removed four Confederate statues from public land uh, with a process that started in 2015 and ended in May of 2017 with the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue from the city's most prominent circle. 
That process helped reintroduce historical facts and a more proper telling of the history of how and why many of these statutes of monuments were put up in the first place. The historic record is now clear. Both statutes of Confederate leaders were erected not just to honor these men, but as part of a movement which has now become known as the cult of the lost cause. This lost cause had one goal, through monuments and other means to rewrite history, to hide the truth, which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity. It sought to continue to oppress black Americans and black lives. According to the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center, there are some 700 Confederate memorial monuments and statues erected well after the Civil War. There are over a thousand streets, buildings, and other markers named after Confederate leaders. In summary, the South lost the war, and a group of people got together and decided that they were going to adorn the country with monuments that revered those who fought on behalf of a cause that was lost, which they wanted to make seem noble. It was a propaganda campaign of epic proportions. You see, these statues are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments purposefully celebrate and perpetuate a fictional sanitized confederacy, ignoring the death, the enslavement, and the terror that they actually stood for. Ultimately, as a country, we must grapple with a simple notion. There is a difference between remembrance of history and the reverence of it. So let me close with a plea to our collective humanity. I noted in a speech upon removing the monuments that a friend had asked me to consider these monuments from the perspective of an African-American mother or father trying to explain to their fifth grade daughter who Robert E. Lee is and why he is revered with this statue. Can any of you look to this child's eyes and convince her that Robert E. Lee is there to encourage her? Do you think that she will feel inspired and hopeful? Do these monuments help her see a future with limitless potential? Have you ever thought that if her potential is limited, ours is too? We all know the answers to these very simple questions. When you look into this child's eyes is the moment when the searing truth comes into focus. This is the moment when we know what is right and what we must do. We cannot continue to walk away from this truth. We must remove all these Confederate symbols that dirty the soil of our beloved country. Once that is done, we can better confront the racist systems that have divided us by design from the beginning of our beloved country for generations so that we can get closer to be the more perfect union that we all aspire to be. Thank you so much. That was the voice of former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, speaking Tuesday, July 21st, 2020, at the House Natural Resources Subcommittee on National Parks. The hearing was on the removal of Confederate statues on public land. Before him, the Reverend Robert W. Lee IV, a descendant of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, and before him, sponsors of proposed legislation, Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton of Washington, D.C., and Representative Michael Brown of Maryland. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Stay with us. Knowing not where I 
is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everm, ready to dive into this month's expanded culture and media segment and to be sure whether it's the challenge to monuments of the confederate slaveocracy or the way that corporate media distort or silence our movements for social transformation culture and media are playing a pivotal role in the miseducation and direction of americans and of all mass media consumers Joining me again to help break it all down for July is journalist John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke and the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, John, I have to give credit to Professor Gerald Horn for informing on the ground about the letter posted this month on the Harper's Magazine website and the tremendous fallout from it. He summarized the piece titled A Letter on Justice and Open Debate as these mainstream gatekeepers who signed it, and that's by and large, there are some some exceptions, defending their place as gatekeepers of acceptable narratives while trying to accuse voices to their left as being intolerant of open debate. Gerald warned us to pay attention as these so-called liberals attack the left, even as left protesters were being killed in the streets in several car and truck attacks by right-wing vigilantes. But of course, that is not the focus of these pundits. So I know you have some thoughts on this whole controversy. Most definitely, Esther. I would urge your listeners to think of this letter as part of a piece and really part of a sort of the last gasp of the last kicks of a dying meal, as my African friends would say. They talk about free speech and trying to protect free speech. That's not really what this is about. This is about trying to stop leftist elements within our society from holding these reactionary elements within the academy, within journalism. It's to keep from holding them accountable, right? And so we see this in this letter. You see many of the signatories, while there are some people who I think we all admire, Wynton Marcellus, Neil Painter, you see a lot of reactions. Barry Weiss, the recently resigned opinion editor at the New York Times, who's written, I mean, the most reactionary dross, and who came to fame, who came to prominence by basically berating a pro-Palestinian professor at Columbia University. That's how she even got this job at the New York Times. So clearly, there's no problem with speech if it's on the right side, if it's, if it's protecting privileged interests. It seems to be, however, that there is a problem with people who use speech to hold the privileged accountable. So I take you back, for instance, to Dr. Anthony Montero, who's a friend of, of both of ours, I think, uh, who was a former professor at Temple University, a very popular professor. 
a very well-regarded professor of African-American studies, and he was essentially fired five years ago, and we heard no uproar about free speech then. And if you will recall, Dr. Montero was fired, uh, and uh, he says, and I think it's obvious to most, that he was fired in retaliation for advocating for a, a head of the African-American Studies Department at Temple, uh, someone who was uh, African-American or African of African descent. Uh, and he was fired for that uh, for that political stance. And, you know, you can take it back even farther, a few years before that, at DePaul University in Chicago, where Norman Finkelstein, the pro-Palestinian professor, very popular professor once again, is fired, allegedly, in a movement that was organized by Alan Dershowitz at Harvard, the very Zionist uh, professor, law professor at Harvard. And so what we see really is this, uh, the use of the academy not to produce knowledge, but to reproduce inequality. And there seems to be an invested interest in protecting that right without being held accountable. And so this is really a problem because if we look back at the periods in time when the United States has made real changes, positive changes, social transformation, be it in the New Deal, during the Civil Rights Movement, we've had this very real conversation between the most oppressed black people, right? Poor black people with that. Uh, and the oppressor, right? Uh, we've had real, genuine conversations, unfiltered, no interlocutors for black people. We've had, you know, the Huey Newtons, we've had the Fred Hamptons, we've had Malcolm X. Before that, we had blacks, uh, say, the, the mothers of the Scottsboro Boys uh, in the Scottsboro trial, and they were speaking directly to the people, to the world, actually. And so that friction, that tension is what creates the heat that's necessary for social change. What this letter is trying to do is trying to keep that conversation from happening. And it's, this is not a small thing. It's actually, it's, it's a counter-revolution. Whether it works or not, I don't know. But it's a very dangerous thing for the people. Wow. So, I had a a few ideas of reading the letter and some of the reaction to it. And um, I mean, one person, uh, one editor describing this controversy as a the liberal class having a debate among itself over identity politics. For so, for example, the the folks who who went to bat around the resignation of James Bennett at the New York Times uh, as an opinion editor over his publication of his editorial by Tom Cotton, basically advocating for the calling out of troops on these protesters against police brutality. Well, how come these same people didn't call out James Bennett for the uh, editorials around, you know, advocating for the coup in Bolivia or advocating for regime change in Venezuela? So it can't just be Black Lives Matter in in the United States, right? It has right. to be, if we really understand what oppression is and what brutality is, and we really understand what inequality is, we have to be about Black Lives Matter across the world. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. And I think this is problematic on an existential level. And what I mean by that is, if you think about the Enlightenment period, why do we always sort of praise Enlightenment, the Enlightenment era, right? The Enlightenment era freed science from the dictates of politics, normally in that period, the church. Well, now what we have is science tied very strictly to the dictates of politics, mainly the Democratic Party, if you look at this letter, right? They are allowing uh, this neoliberalism to dictate 
what the science says. And we can see that in the in the authors or the signers, uh, the signatories to this letter. Many of them are neoliberals. Thomas Sheridan Williams, who's one of the authors, and who I think is, I think he says he is the product of a black father and a white mother. Well, he's come to prominence really starting the most the most noxious identity politics, identitarian politics, and neoliberal ideas that we can imagine. And he wrote, I think his first book was, uh, I can't remember the name of it, the title of it, but it was, it's about how his father saved him by dissuading him from listening to hip-hop. Well, I, you know, I'm unaware that hip-hop, you know, is what has spread the global pandemic or what has reduced our economy to rubble. So it's just really this, I, it's, it's really this, uh, tethering of uh, of science and of the academy to the politics of the day that's very dangerous okay well i'm glad that we were able to discuss this letter because it is and it probably will continue to be a hot topic and john my topic is very much related to your comments on the harper's magazine letter so also this month i had a segment uh, on the show on what I call the corporate media and the military-industrial complex, changing the subject from the endemic racism in the U.S. back to their obsession with Russia. You know, at that time, there was the claim that Russia offered bounties to kill U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, and then they were wagging their finger at President Trump for not taking any action over these alleged bounties being paid. And, of course, most recently, they accused Russia of trying to hack information on COVID-19 vaccines being developed in the UK. So I mentioned these latest claims by, quote unquote, anonymous intelligence officials, not to relitigate the debunked Russiagate hoax, because it is just that to us, a debunked Russiagate hoax. But to point out the fact that it served as a hard pivot away from mainstream coverage of the national uprising against racism. You know, all of a sudden, coverage of the protests, such as it was, stopped. And I mean, all across the board. So it was a way of changing the subject from an issue and politics and real people in the streets that the mainstream media could not really control. They could not control that narrative as much as they tried. Right. And then they went back to something that they could control. You know, their familiar turf of unnamed intelligence sources and the Russia front in this new Cold War. So um, I don't think that corporate media coverage of the protests was all that great. You know, very seldom did I see a protester be interviewed or any comprehensive discussion of the platform of the Movement for Black Lives, which, by the way, uh, calls for an end to U.S. support for the military occupation of Palestine. So maybe that's why there was no deep discussion. But anyway... There was and there is an ongoing intentional, you know, misdefining of what violence is. So when you first saw coverage of these protests, and I know that's probably because it makes good pictures, there was all this coverage of fires and then looting. And I should say some of these fires, the Minnesota activists said that were set by white supremacists. And in the coverage of looting... There was like this video on a loop sometimes of young people who had nothing to do with the protests looting boxes of sneakers. But there were not pictures of sometimes even or even a mention of protesters being continually brutalized by police. So people protesting police brutality were being victimized again by police police brutality. 
And I think I mentioned last month that it took a criminal defense attorney in North Carolina named Greg Doucette to compile a Google spreadsheet that now has more than 800 incidents of police brutality toward our protesters right now in the streets. And these are incidents captured on video or photograph since the murder of George Floyd. And it makes me think of the fact that maybe corporate media was embarrassed by the fact that it took The Guardian, a paper in another country, to begin even counting the number of people killed by the police in the United States, and which is an outlier. Okay, and then the only exception of the, uh, the coverage is when they can like in this Nouveau Russiagate coverage, link the coverage to their anti-Trump coverage. So when Trump did his infamous photo op walk and had the federal police, you know, crack down on on, and brutalize protesters here in D.C. back in June, you know, they did cover that because they were able to bash Trump for it. And then now, um, similarly, troops are brutalizing protesters with Democratic mayors like in in Portland, and now they're headed to Chicago. But people in these same cities have suffered long-standing abuse by police in these same, you know, Democratic-controlled cities. And so I know, like I said, you spent time in Chicago where Laquan McDonald was killed and Rahm Emanuel, who was the mayor, colluded with the police to suppress video of his murder. And then finally, my other media story for this month, you know, ties into this pivot to Russia you know, your girl Joanne Reed de- debuted her new nightly news program this week on MSNBC, and apparently too much fanfare, watch parties and everything, and and I had no idea about all this. I was told about it at the last minute, and I tuned in because I felt like, wow, undoubtedly the people's movement in the streets, the cry of Black Lives Matter, had something to do with her career mattering at MSNBC. So I thought for sure her debut would include some new robust reporting on the movement, which is like the movement of our of our lifetime, really. But no, you know, she opened up the with with the same references to this debunked Russiagate narrative. And then her first two guests were, you know, chiefs of the Democratic neoliberal establishment, you know, which have let has led us to this point, um, but not before, you know, destroying Libya. And having black people on slave blocks. So her first two guests were Hillary Clinton, right, who led the the charge into Libya and murdered Gaddafi and cackled about it on TV. And then it was Joe Biden. I have a clip of the opening sentences of her show. Trump has spent the last four years aspiring to something other than democracy. He got elected with the help of a foreign adversary after asking Russia to help find dirt on his opponent. And then he got impeached for trying to do it again with Ukraine regarding former Vice President Joe Biden. And now he has sent federal troops into American cities to suppress protests for racial justice and police reform. Okay, so, you know, I just wanted to to end with that because uh, not only does she include the debunked Russiagate hoax into the first part of the beginning of her show, she does not deal then or after that with this mass movement for black lives and against racism. And I also have been thinking about how MSNBC and the, they never talk about how the, the current 
police state or the suppression state that we're witnessing right now was set up by President Obama, right? Right, right. And how Obama destroyed the Occupy movement. And so... And at that same time, there was the these, I think, fusion centers where there was this coordination between uh, local police, sheriff's departments, and federal officials, and not only um, brutally suppressing protesters, but in surveillance. And so the one I always remember, because we were also talking about the dangers of fracking and environmental justice at the same time, there were these just environmental activists in Pennsylvania who just didn't want their air, water, and soil poison. And it turned out that they were being categorized as domestic terrorists. And they had a whole file on them, and they were being surveilled. So uh, that's my part of what I wanted to present, discuss with you, in terms of media this month. If I can, just very quickly, Esther, I, I think this is so important. This is, you know, these are not small things. These are not sort of these sort of banal criticisms of the media. This is really epic in some ways. And the media has played as much of a role in the decline of the United States and this imminent catastrophe, because that's what we're facing. And the media has played as big, as big a role as any institution in America. What I mean by that is, and we can look specifically at John Lewis, who I respected, right? I respect John Lewis. But John Lewis wasn't my hero. A hero of mine would have been his successor as the chairman at SNCC, then Stokely Carmichael, later uh, Kwame Ture, who had an understanding of political economy. Kwame Ture's idea was not uh, any kind of neoliberal. He was no shield for neoliberalism or capitalism. He wasn't a shield for black faces in high places. He was an advocate for justice and for the end of exploitation of all people, black people, white people, gay people, women, all people. And so the media really is a study in failure. It's an exercise in forgetting. We remember John Lewis so that we can forget Kwame Ture. We remember what Donald Trump did yesterday so we can forget what Obama did five years ago, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, I loathe Donald Trump, but there's no standard which I can apply to Donald Trump that doesn't also apply to Barack Obama. They were both imperialists. They both supported white supremacy. They both supported uh, this this exploitive free market. So we're really coming apart at the seams, and a big part of it is because we don't have the conversation that the media should be, should be having. Anyway, let's take a brief break, and then we're going to come back with our culture picks for the month. Stay with us. Do you have any hot music from Limon that any resistance music I should play? Uh, they just play Bob Marley here. That's all they play. <laughs> <laughs> so anything you put out from Bob Marley, that's what they're playing here. No, no, no. Bob Marley and Tupac. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know, you can say whatever you want. I don't care where you go. If you find black people, Tupac is popular. I don't care where you go. In the world. I don't care where you go in the world. Okay. Change. I guess change is good for any of us. Whatever it takes for any of y'all to get up out the hood, I'm with you. I ain't mad at you. Got nothing but love for you. Do you think, boy? Yeah. All the homies that I ain't talked to in a while. I'ma send this one out for y'all. Know what I mean? Cause I ain't mad at you. Heard y'all tearing it out there, kicking up dust. 
give it a mother <laughs> Yeah, Cause I ain't mad at you I ain't mad at Stuck in prison, barely grieving, believing that the world is a prison. It's like a ghetto we can never leave. A broken rose giving bloom through the cracks of the concrete. So many other things for us to see. Things to be our history, so full of tragedy and misery. To all my homies, never made it home. The dead peers I shared tattoo tears for when I'm alone. This is Esther Averum on On the Ground with journalist John Jeter for this month's expanded look at culture and media. And we have our culture picks for the month. Now, for my culture pick, there's really no hint of entertainment in it. Continuing my reading of African-American history, I would recommend the book document Reconstruction in America, Racial Violence After the Civil War, 1865 to 1876, that everyone can download for free at the website of the Equal Justice Initiative. And a warning... Uh, this report includes descriptions of gra- graphic violence that I'm going to discuss. So parents, if you need to make adjustments right now with the radio or podcast, however you're listening, you might want to do that. So what drew me to the report was its announcement about it documenting just the known 2000 murders of African American men, women, and children between 1865 and 1876. And these are lynching murders, just 2,000 of those. And then a countless more unknown murders, as well as brutal assaults, rapes, mutilations, described by witnesses as savage and depraved, including burnings at the stake, forced drownings, severed ears and entrails, uh, mutilated sex organs, and the open display of skulls and limbs as trophies by these criminals. And I was struck by the report summary that that said that it is because whites, including police and other paid public officials, were allowed to commit these heinous crimes with impunity during this decade. It set the tone for continued barbaric acts and the denial of basic human and constitutional rights for black people until the fight back during the civil rights movement 80 years later. So... While the 1921 massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma is in the news right now, uh, according to this report, there are at least 34 documented mass lynchings during the Reconstruction era, including at least 200 black people being shot to death in 1866 in New Orleans at a protest for voting rights. Louisiana, in particular, I have to say, was the site of repeated massacres to suppress voting rights and other incidents of racial violence during this 12-year Reconstruction period. So this report just shows how black people were killed for any reason, you know, uh, for leaving a plantation where white people were trying to keep them enslaved, basically, or to force them to work for free, killed after asking for their pay for any type of seeking justice or just because these murderers, rapists knew that they could get away with it. And so these are some cases from the thousands documented by the Equal Justice Initiative. In Moore County, North Carolina, February 1869, after a black man named Daniel Blue testified against white men accused of racial violence, a white mob attacks his home and lynches his wife and his five children. In 1871, 60 members of the Ku Klux Klan brutally lynched Jack Dupree, 
the well-respected black president of a local political club in Monroe County, Mississippi. The mob dragged Mr. Dupree from his home within sight of his three young children and his wife, who had recently given birth to twins. The mob stripped Mr. Dupree of his clothes and beat him until he was nearly dead, then slit his throat, cut out his heart and intestines, and threw his corpse into a nearby creek. Mr. Dupree's remains were never found, but a witness who was forced to hold the mob's horses described the attack and recalled hearing his screams. In September 1866, a black woman named Rhoda Ann Childs reported to the Freedmen's Bureau that eight white planters had come to her Georgia home demanding to see her husband. When they learned Mrs. Childs was alone, the men kidnapped, beat, and sexually assaulted her. Mrs. Child's affidavit described that one of the men ran his pistol into me and said he had a hell of a mind to pull the trigger. After another of the men, a former Confederate soldier, raped Mrs. Child's, the mob robbed her home and beat her daughters. So, John, the report made me think about many of our current discussions, even. So, when I've heard newscasters say this week that the only analogies to the attacks by these federal troops, these stormtrooper brown shirt troops in in Portland is what the Border Patrol does routinely, you know, in terms of our U.S. borders or what the U.S. military has done abroad, I have thought back to the totalitarian terror and savagery reigned onto black people, often by police, sheriffs, and other public officials after the Civil War. And this Reconstruction period was so brutal that it served as inspiration to Adolf Hitler. And of course, many monuments that are being torn down now in this mass movement against racism now honor those who carried out these heinous crimes. So it's not light. You know, I know we do usually a light item here at the end of the segment, but that's my culture offering for this month. Reconstruction in America, Racial Violence After the Civil War, 1865 to 1876 at the Equal Justice Initiative website. And it's not light reading or a light culture note to end our conversation, but that's what I have this month. It's not light. But, yeah, um, but, it's, but it's valuable, I, I think, at this moment when we have so many especially liberals in the media. And this is, you know, this is what we were talking about with the Harper's Magazine piece. Uh, But so many are trying to gaslight racism and its importance. And the fact of the matter, and even gaslight slavery, people from, you know, we talked about this in the last uh, episode uh, of On the Media, uh, Nicholas Lehman, the dean of the, uh, former dean of the journalism school at Columbia, I believe, and a writer at The New Yorker who wrote that, you know, uh, racial capitalism is really overstated because slavery wasn't really cotton, wasn't really that big a deal. Well, that's counterfactual. In fact, it was a big deal, not just to the United States, but to the entire world. And so we see these sort of counter narratives. And the truth of the matter is that slavery is still with us. These badges and incidences of slavery are still with us. We still have a system based on the exploitation, grounded in the exploitation of the black body. And that, I think, leads to my uh, media, my cultural piece, which is the return of the NBA, which I believe is for one week from today um, or next week in any event. And, you know, I, I, I just wonder why the media is not making more of an issue of 
the resumption of organized sports in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, it seems certain that someone is going to die. It seems almost as certain that many people will die. And it seems very likely that even one of these young athletes, as fit as they are, that we may even have deaths of, of, of an athlete or two. Uh, and that just, you know, that doesn't bode well for us as a nation to see us have a resumption of sports just so that a few mostly white owners and Michael Jordan, I suppose, can make a lot of money. I, I, I don't understand the logic of it. I don't understand why the media doesn't sort of raise more questions about this. Okay. All right. Well, coming from a true sports fan who I know would love to see sports, I, I take that to heart what you're saying. But we're totally out of time and we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I've been joined by uh, my co-host for this segment, this monthly segment, John Jeter. He is former foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. Thank you for joining me this month, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke, and thanks to our supporters on Patreon. You can also listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us there as well. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, or patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Everam, that's On the Ground W, Esther Everam, is on all your podcast platforms. And... The podcast, as well as our social media pages and website, all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included The Psalmist by Kamasi Washington, Stand for Freedom by Akua Alrich, and the Nation House Youth Vocal Ensemble. Our remix of I Ain't Mad at Chip by Tupac Shakur, and our theme music is Blue Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>